We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I don't think anything's ever meant to be traditional, especially not Indian cuisine. Everything in India was born out of necessity. So if a family can't do something one way just because it's traditional, they evolve it. All I'm doing is pushing that in a completely natural trajectory. If I come to America, there's no way I can cook exactly the same as I would in India or my mom would. I mean, there's just no way. It's ludicrous to think you could. So all you can do is evolve, like take a look at what's around you and go with it. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today, Matt's talking to Marijuana Rani, the chef at Chaipani in Asheville and Atlanta. Later on the show, you will get to hear a conversation I had with Donald Moore, who is an interesting guy who happens to also be the chief culinary officer of the Cheesecake Factory. Shout out Cheesecake Factory. I obviously had some questions about the cheeseburger spring rolls, among other things. But let's talk about Marijuana. Marijuana Rani is one of my favorite guys in the food world. We are buddies. We've traveled together. I really like him. He's a rising star straight up. We talk about his point of view, which is unique. He is was born in India, raised in London, moved to the States, sold cars, sold some other things. And then he was like, OK, I don't like doing business. I want to be a chef. So he opened up a restaurant, which is informed by the flavors of his home, which is India, but not just any Indian food, Indian street food. I absolutely love his cooking. And in the midst of all this, he's kind of getting into the spice business, right? Absolutely. He has a really cool line of spices. We talk about um, how he is bringing spices from the world to American home cooks. We talk about cooking with spices. It's a really, really fascinating conversation, Anna. Here's Matt with Marijuana Rani of Chaipani. Marijuana Rani. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Buddy, I love hanging out with you. Uh, we usually are doing this in like Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes in Asheville. Sometimes on a farm. Sometimes on a farm <laughs> in Asheville. We know each other for a long time. Yeah. There's this phrase in India, jugard, that I said that kind of right. You said actually pretty good. Pretty good. Jugard, yeah. It means basically, essentially to MacGyver shit together, which yeah. I think is really funny. Um, how does that define your style of Indian, American, hybridized, incredible cooking? Um, everything about what we do is jagard. Um, I mean, street food in its very essence is MacGyvering stuff. It's Franken food, you know, especially in India. Um, there's no sort of regionality to it. There's no um, social sort of conventions around it. All of that is mostly in the home. But once you get to the street, all those rules are out of the window, and these guys put stuff together uh, in ways that are just truly based on what's around them, what's available, and what they think they can sell. And there's no manual for it. There's no cookbook. There's no, you know, the greatest recipes of Indian street food, at least back in 09 when we started Chaipani. So literally, we were MacGyvering this as we started. Um, James was with me back then in the kitchen, and Daniel Peach and the original crew. I remember going to Raleigh. Uh, buying samosas at a um, Indian sort of you know dive, bringing them yeah. back and and then taking them apart to see <laughs> how do you make one of these things, and then honestly the restaurant business is 
probably why I fit so perfectly yeah. coming with that mindset from India where you just figure out a way to put stuff together and make it work, MacGyver it. Yeah. That's what restaurants are all about. You are doing Indian street food. That's yeah. what you're known for. And you mentioned 10 years you've been doing Chaipani yeah. in Asheville. Yeah. Um, how the hell was it received right away in Asheville? Asheville is not a very big place, and I'm sure no. there's not a lot of Indian population there. No. I mean, it's funny. We I was having a conversation with uh, another chef, Vish Butt in Oxford, Mississippi. Sure. And we were talking about, like, wait a minute. You're in Oxford, Mississippi. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, you know, Manith was in Nashville, uh, Manith Chauhan, uh, Chidi's in Raleigh. I'm name-dropping a little bit, but we're all Indian. And we're all got, you know, these sort of uh, – pushing Indian cuisine forward type of restaurants. And I looked at him and says, how come we're not in San Francisco? How come we're not in L.A.? Honestly, I don't think we could have done what we wanted to do in those cities. Um, cost of entry is too high. Mm-hmm. takes too much capital. And it takes a certain sort of um, pulling yourself out of the day-to-day rat race to, mm-hmm. um, to take that leap. But I think in the South in particular, it's – kind of like the wild west where lots of migrants are coming there mm-hmm. taking a look around and say it's easy to do business it's affordable and surprisingly there's a sort of a, a much more diverse uh, eating population than you'd imagine people were ready for the sloppy people jane were ready for it people were lo- the exactly. sloppy jane let's talk about that dish i love the sloppy <laughs> jane um, well, it's a sloppy jai. Oh, jai? Yeah, oh, but I like sloppy jane. I, I might don't have know to go with that one day. jai. Okay. So that's another MacGyver dish. We were just talking about that. It's essentially the Indian dish is kima pao, which okay, is yeah. a ground spicy lamb hash served with pao, this sort of Portuguese-style sweet roll on the side. I mean, I'd yes. say Portuguese-style because they bought it to, the Portuguese bought bread to India. And uh, when I came to the South and realized there's no way I can put this on a plate the way it's done in India – call it a kima pao and actually expect anybody to order it. But I'd had plenty of sloppy joes yeah. uh, in my time in the South. And I said, all I have to do is reconfigure this, MacGyver it, so to speak, to be a dish that essentially is the same components but just presented completely See, what I love about your food is that you're not compromising from these traditional dishes in India. You're just marketing it better than most. Well, yes and no. Okay. I mean, that, that, word, comes, me. well, that word comes up a lot. Everybody goes like, well, is this traditional? And my answer is like, I don't think anything's ever meant to be traditional, especially not Indian cuisine. Everything in India was born out of necessity and evolves out of necessity. So if a family can't do something one way just because it's traditional, they evolve it. And all I'm doing is pushing that in its completely natural trajectory. If I come to America, Mm -hmm. there's no way I can cook exactly the same Mm -hmm. as I would in India or my mom would. I mean, there's just no way. It's ludicrous to think you could. So all you can do is evolve. Like, take a look at what's around you and go with it. It brings up a point I wanted to talk about traveling to India. And I think when I say tradition, I meant there is roots in India in this cooking. It is not an A plus B blending mashup girl talk style of of food. It's actually, there is a lot of India in the cooking. Absolutely. Oh, no, no. So that's not what I'm trying to imply. What I'm trying to say is that when we, well, let me put it this way. A, there's no such thing as Indian food, as you and I probably (laughs) know. I mean, it's Kerala food, Gujarati food. When I'm in India and I buy a cookbook, it doesn't say Indian cooking on it. It says Andhra cooking or Gujarati cooking or Bengali cooking. But if you had to pick the most democratic food of India that you can actually call Indian food, it is that Indian street food. 
So that's why I can put Indian street food on my restaurant and feel good about it as versus just saying it's an Indian cuisine because then mm-hmm. then I'm completely bullshitting. I agree. There's no such thing. Very articulate. Let's talk about going to India though. Yeah. You have a very – you have like a method. You're like a method chef where you take your chefs and your crew to India often. You recorded a documentary called Cutting Chai, which yep. you can find online listener – Check that out. It's really, really, really well done. Definitely Google it. But talk about this method because I, I, we interview a lot of chefs on the show. And oftentimes they will not travel with their staff for various reasons. Um, but you make a point of bringing – you've been there many times. Let's talk yeah. about your, your trips there. Yeah. So um, I kept going back and after Chaipani opened and just going back to learn, refresh, reimmerse. And also somewhere along the way, about three or four years in, I realized that – it wasn't enough for me to go there and bring this back, this sort of uh, knowledge base back to the kitchen. The only way the guys in the kitchen were going to understand what was truly going on with Indian food was to take them to India. And and there's two Indias when you go to India, Matt. There's the India in the bubble that most mm-hmm. unfortunately tourists go and experience. That means you fly in, your chauffeur picks you up at the airport, you go to your luxury hotel, a chauffeur car takes you to see all the sites, and it's this really uber-sanitized version of India. Mm-hmm. But the minute you open the door... Uh, and get out of the car, get out of the hotel. It's 100% immersive. India's got two speeds, like on and off. And when you come out of the car, it's on. And that's what we did. I didn't want to take these guys on this sanitized tour of India and see the Taj Mahal and see the sights. We got out of the car and we went into people's homes. We went into auntie's kitchens. We knocked on restaurant doors. Uh, We, you know, stopped people in the street sometimes cooking something and saying, what are you doing? And all we did was take a camera along and record it. And that's how that documentary came. I love that documentary. What are? Let's talk about some of the recent trips. Which yeah. regions have you focused on? Because you have traveled through like Tamil Nadu, and you've been to Kerala. You've been through all parts of the south. Have you been to the north recently? Yeah. So the north is where we went the last time we yeah. went. Okay, we went cool. to Delhi, Jaipur, Dehradun, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas, and that's my yeah. mom's ancestral family home. Yeah, right. We still have farms there. My, my grandparents were farmers. So I took the crew, and we we spent some time with them, uh, and then we also went to. Um, Amritsar, where the Golden Temple is, and yeah. then worked your way then slightly um, uh, southwest to Mumbai and then to my hometown of Amalagar. But just uh, a month ago, Matt, I sent five of my front-of-the-house staff mm. without me uh, to India. Without you? Without me. And oh, we, sent them with, we sent them with somebody else that had been on the team. That's a different documentary. <laughs> That's a totally different documentary. Because it's not enough to just take the kitchen team there. No. Uh, we sent, you know, if if we're expecting a server or a hostess or a busser to truly have cultural competence, the only way to yeah. do it is to go there and see it. How did that go for them? They loved it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was overwhelming. I mean, sure. it, it really is. The first time you go to India, even when I, even with me, it's overwhelming. But uh, if you surrender, like just give in, don't try to control the chaos, don't try to put a box yeah. around it, just completely open up and give yourself to India. That's when that really Give our listeners one place that they should definitely seek out that maybe is a little more unexpected, off the trail a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know if it's off the trail, yeah. but Banaras, uh, Varanasi, the ancient city in India, it's the oldest inhabited city in India. It's the religious center of India, but it's also got some of the most amazing street food of India. Mm. So you're getting a hit from every direction. I mean... When you when you think of India in the movies, that's Varanasi. When you think of India that you've never seen or even thought about in the movies, that's also Varanasi or Benares, as it's known now. I want to talk about your your past because you have a you've your background is interesting. You you I let me I think I'm going to get this right. Born in London, moved to India, moved to South Carolina, moved to California, started a career. 
You've been yeah. following me around, man. That's pretty accurate. That's I, pretty, man. <laughs> homie, I know you, and I've actually saw you on the YouTube video last night. There so I'm not cheated. Okay, I okay, you. yeah. And then you, and so you ended up. But I want to talk about South Carolina because yeah. you ended up. You were living in the UK and in uh, in India, but then you moved to South Carolina, and yeah. you said something interesting about it. You found the food in South Carolina, the Indian food in South Carolina, to be off. What did that mean exactly? Well, I think off is me being polite. <laughs> I mean, so I came in 1990. To, I'm dating myself a little bit. And the state of Indian food in America in 1990, at least in places like South Carolina, pretty much sucked. <laughs> and here's what I'm saying. I'm not mad at them. I completely understand why it sucks. You've got Indian businessmen that you know show up here, entrepreneurs, and they take a look around and say, well, my cousin owns a motel and my brother-in-law owns a, you know, a, a convenience store. And I know I'm stereotyping here, but I'm Indian, so I'm allowed to do this. And, and, um, and oh, I know what, I'll open an Indian restaurant. There isn't one. And when you go in to eat two things, you're eating food that's not, I'm not saying it's dumbed down at all. It is actually authentic. It's Indian food. But it's a very, very narrow spectrum of Indian food. It's what we call Indian banquet food. And the second thing is like, Good enough is okay. For, it's mm-hmm. it's a business. It's meant to be good enough. There was never somebody like me mm-hmm. that actually cared and wanted to make a name in cooking Indian food. Back then, I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not talking about all of America. I'm talking about at least in my little part of yeah. South Carolina. Yeah. That's what I experienced there. And then, so fast forward a bit, you you moved to California, had a career in business, uh, and then you moved. You decided you wanted to open a restaurant. Is that no, what no, got no, you no, into no. it? No, 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 no. So Molly and I, my wife and I, we just had our our kid, and we just wanted to get out of the rat race. I mean, I see. living in okay. San Francisco, we hadn't bought a home. It was the dot com boom, and we were just feeling like we're stuck in the rat case, in the in the rat race, <laughs> and yeah. the rat case. Yeah, it was. Right. So we did sort of that most quintessential cliche thing you can do is like let's go find a small family town <laughs> with family values where we can raise our kid and get out of the rat race. So Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. So, okay. And then... That, but you weren't a chef, man. No, no, no. Man, You're not no. a chef. No, I came to Asheville to get into uh, real estate development. Um, luxury, private-gated real estate development is how... Mm. Don't ask me how I got there. Mm. That's where I ended up. And that was going great. Mm-hmm. Everything was exactly how we planned. We bought a house. Molly got to stay home, help raise our kid. I had a great work schedule. And then um, 2008, 2009 happened. Economy crashed, mm-hmm. the Great Recession, and you were I, in real estate. I was in real uh, estate, ouch. and the developer I was working with was about maybe sixty days from going bankrupt. Okay. I mean, I, I saw the writing on the wall. So that's when um, you know Molly and I we were talking about what to do next. And full credit to her, she looked at me and said, "Look, you've had this idea for this Indian street food um, and, and this restaurant that you've been sort of um, th- talking about for as long mm-hmm. as I've known you. Maybe this is the time to do it." Um, and as crazy as it sounds, it's usually when you push completely out of your comfort zone is when most people will make that leap and, and take that risk. Great advice, yeah. I would never have taken that leap if things were going – I mean, if the real estate market was going great in 2008, 2009, we would not be sitting here today. So millennial of you. Ah, wow. Just like, take that leap. You can do anything. No, I love it. No, it's so true. When did you know this Chaipani would be successful in Asheville? Like, let's let's drill down to that time period. What is the yeah. dish or a couple so, things? So, yeah, really... it, it's, it's uh, summer 09. Uh, I get the keys to this restaurant spot. Space that was a you know a greasy spoon that I that I'd gone out of business, and I'm in there and I call a few of my friends and I start explaining to them what I'm doing, and light bulbs are going off. I mean it was as if we had just somehow caught magic and bottled it, and all we had to do was like shake it and make it into what we needed <laughs> it to be. 
Um, it, it's word spread like wildfire. I'm saying just amongst my friends, people started showing up and volunteering to work and paint and scrape floors and not because of me, the idea, mm-hmm. everybody loved the idea of what we we're doing. Uh, people will walk by on the street and say, what's happening here? I'd say Indian street food. And back then it sounded amazing and nobody mm-hmm. had any idea what it was. Um, social media was just nascent, just mm-hmm. starting to take off. Mm-hmm. So between Facebook and Twitter and then Instagram a few years, we were riding that wave right from day one. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we just started branding ourselves, putting the word out there. And Asheville itself was having a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was starting to be known as this cool city that's a great vacation spot and, you know, culture and diversity and food. Mm-hmm. Matt, it all came together perfectly. I love it. And and some of the dishes, too. Like, what were some Well, yeah. Dishes? So, um, you know, what the – like I said, there was no handbook to no, how to do Indian not. street food. There was, no, there was no guide. So I went back to cellular memory. What was the memory of the street food that I – remember growing up that I loved the most. So the Chaipani menu is my personal greatest hits. It's the things that I love mm-hmm. to eat. And not only the what I love to eat, but the way I like to eat it. So somebody comes in and goes, well, how come there's no bloody blah on the bloody blah? I'm like, because I oh. hate bloody blah. <laughs> I hate peas in my samosa. I really do. I hate fucking peas in my yeah, samosa. Yeah, yeah. Our samosa no peas. Um, our alutiki, you know, it's a pan-fried little potato croquette. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally it's just potatoes. There's no binder, mm-hmm. uh, not even egg, because many Indians are completely vegetarian, mm-hmm. you know, pure vegetarians and not even eggs. And it's shallow pan-fried. Well, when we dropped the first one on the fry, it exploded, and then the second one exploded, and the third one exploded. I'm like, okay, this is not going to work. So we had to jigard it. We egg battered it, put panko on the outside, yeah. bind the whole thing together, threw it in the fryer. And I swear to you, that alu tiki that we make is probably better than what I grew up eating in India because we pushed that dish forward. The sloppy jai, kale pakoras. Shout out um, to the kale pakora. I mean, that's like, that pakora. is like my, my one. I visited a restaurant as just a customer didn't know you, and that I ordered twice, three times no, maybe. yeah. Okra fries, right? Same yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, uh, corn pale, green mango chot, uh, sweet potato chot. So it was me jugarding, taking yeah. a look at what's around me, what do people like to eat. Uh, everybody loves fried okra, but the slimy batter fried okra that's so quintessential yeah. to the South, that, that wasn't how I want to do it. So yeah. we innovate. Push forward, come up with new ideas. Speaking of like innovating, it. you moved to Decatur, Georgia yeah. uh, a couple of years after, and, and you ended up opening this amazing location version of Chaipani, right. which is larger and bolder. And let's talk about Atlanta. Like, like this city really, I think, is underrated. I say it all the time. I try to say as much as possible as a food city in America. It's like one of the top two, if not the best, because there's a lot of great. So tell me, how did it work in Decatur? Like opening Chaipani, how did you change your business a little bit? Well, we knew we wanted to be in Atlanta because um, Chaipani in Asheville wasn't going to be big enough to uh, support and keep the team together the way that had come together. And I knew that if we didn't grow, we'd lose them. So we wanted to go to Atlanta. I recognized it as this amazing food city. It is one of the most diverse cities in America. I mean, Buford Highway alone will hands down beat I mean, we got to remember, I you know spent all these years in San Francisco, so I get good ethnic food. Buford Highway will blow most cities people out talk of the about water. San Gabriel Valley outside Los Angeles. Exactly, it is exactly. Buford Mission Highway. Mission Street in San Francisco. Yeah, that's our Buford Highway. Um, yeah. Indian population. I mean, there's a Patel Plaza. It's one of the largest yeah. Indian communities that I've experienced in most places I've lived. And the cool thing about Atlanta is, um, peop- the communities actually. I mean. Various groups form communities. Even chefs form communities. So unlike a big city where it's so hard to connect with anybody, 
Atlanta is really easy to do that. So it was a real welcoming city. And um, and we picked Decatur because it also was a small town, mm-hmm. sort of a suburb of Atlanta, if you will, and reminded me a lot of Asheville. I see. So the community, you could build community right away. Exactly. So tell me, how did the the Indian population of Atlanta? Uh, oh, the skepticism proceed? was sky high, probably in the <laughs> beginning when we when we first opened. Well, there's a lot of Indian restaurants in Atlanta, and yeah. but they're all traditional. And we were maybe two miles from Patel Plaza, which is yeah. got maybe twenty little Indian dives in there. So. My initial thought was like, oh, Indians are not going to come eat, eat at Chaipani. Not because the food's not legit or, or, or it's not delicious. It's just it's a different experience. We're not serving on paper plates and, you know, with sort of semi-greasy spoon You can get like a great old-fashioned. Exactly. You, you can get restaurant. that. And I figured between the price point and the scene that Indians would be more frugal when paying for their own food uh, because – and I would be the same in, in many circumstances – uh, so we expected it to be, you know, our, our typical Atlanta population and um, blew us out of the water when the Indians started rolling in. In your kitchens, you staff, you'll call them aunties, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Uh, which are, um, uh, in, you know, women, um, Indian women who, who will cook some of the traditional flavors. How does that work? Well, I love that model. Any elder in India is either an uncle or an auntie. I see. Okay. Always. I mean, I could be 50 years old, and if there's an elder, the respectful way I would say, you know, talk to her would be calling her an auntie. So it's, it's, it's just that's the norm. But um, it's also, you know, a colloquialism or subgenre for a certain type of housewife um, that that's you know cooks at home. We we call them aunties. Just and it's an endearing Very term. respectful, though. respectfully an yeah. endearing term. You know, uh, it's the auntie. It's what you imagine when you think of an auntie. And one of my um, chefs there, Daniel Peach, suddenly had this idea saying, wait a minute, I know we don't hire Indian cooks because, um, you know, I was worried that they would continue, they would just cook the way that they always traditionally Mm -hmm. cook, which was very different from what we were trying to do. He goes, but what about the aunties? He goes, "Uh, there's got to be so many incredible home cooks that probably would be intimidated to ever come and work in a restaurant. But what if we set up an environment for them to come and work for us? And they did. So, yeah, we have aunties working. We have an uncle now, actually. Oh, we do. Okay. We, we finally so found an uncle. you find semi-retired, slightly older men and women in the Indian community in Atlanta to actually cook? What are they making? So they're making the labor-intensive, highly skilled uh, you know, products like our uttapam, our samosas, our rotis, our parathas. We make our own uh, save in-house, you know, which is crispy sort of extruded chickpea noodles. Many of the things that even in India most people go out and buy. Because it's so labor intensive. Uh, but, you know, these were not just semi-retired, but usually the dynamic is mm-hmm. husband and wife, Indian, moved to America. The husband's got a job, but the wife's at home. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity for them to come and work in a kitchen and contribute to their household. And, and they're so incredibly proud that they bring home sometimes more money than their husbands do. Oh, that's good to know. It's really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. And, and they're amazing cooks. They're incredible cooks. I would argue that the best cooks in India are probably the housewives of India. It's an interesting model. I feel like this can be could be used in different cuisines. I feel like finding um, home cooks to work in restaurants for the first time. Well, I was just watching Chef's Table on Netflix, mm-hmm. and there's an Indian lady with the restaurant in uh, the UK called uh, Darjeeling Express. Mm-hmm. All women kitchen, all Indian women mm-hmm. kitchen. I, I think there's something going on here, and I think as people start realizing it, um, I think you'll see Indian food suddenly take a turn away from this over-stylized 
cream-heavy banquet food fit for moguls and royals towards legit home cooking, the, the way food tastes when somebody's made it with love and care at home. I think you're going to see that starting Do you feel the banquet food is just too beloved in America for it to be it's got pushed its to place. the side? I don't think it'll be pushed to the side. I'm saying it'll always have its place. Yeah. But if it's if it's got a place at the expense of all these other incredibly layered cuisine with so much depth to it, whether it's regional or whether it's even home cooking, then that would be a shame, man. But you, you talk about labor, and it's just so labor-intensive yeah, to create this cuisine. And the banquet cuisine, also labor-intensive, but But much less so. Much less so. Yeah, you're not doing a lot of hand prep. You're not slicing yeah. it down. I mean, we cut millions of pounds of onions a year by hand and, and yeah. just, for all, just because everything's starting from scratch. But... I mean, there's an entire untapped yeah. culinary labor force of of women stuck at home, not working because their husbands are running businesses. I'm not saying that this is, you know, that there's any um, shame in that. I mean, that is, it's a choice. But there's also a choice potentially of coming and working in restaurants and completely changing the face of Indian food in America. How did you find them? Oh, we just put an ad, ad, ad out in Patel Plaza. I was dubious. I was <laughs> like, I don't think they'll want to leave home. I don't think that that social dynamic that happens with Indians where the husband's place is X and the woman's place is Y. Mm -hmm. I felt like that would be hard to break. Um, there was a line out the door of aunties. Just, you know, ready Amazing. to go, ready to go. So cool. And, I, and it really does show in the food. Let's talk about spices. You have a company called Spice Walla. Yeah. And it's it's really, uh, as as the name suggests, it's a spice brand that is um, either the flavors of India or flavors of, of South no, Asia. No, you brought it up. Everybody seems to think because it's Spice Walla that it's Indian spices. We carry over 150 spices from all around the world. Damn. Um, of course, you know, when... India is synonymous with spice, but so are many other countries, you know, so South America, so is, you know, um, most Latin America, so is many parts of Europe, um, you know, all over the world, the Caribbean. So we care, you know, and especially in Europe, we've got more sort of the European style, you know, more savory herbs. So we carry it all. Uh, if you're going to ask me, why did I do this? Yeah, <laughs> I am going to ask you because there's a lot of spices in the world. Yeah. You go to like Whole Foods and holy shit, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, you're selling whole spices. You're selling ground spices. Yeah. So what? why? 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 Are yeah. Why? why? You? Yeah. Why? Actually, so it didn't start. You're absolutely right. The average consumer can go into a grocery store like Whole Foods um, and buy really high quality spices, um, organic and, and good stuff. I mean, and there's a lot of variety. Restaurants don't have that. Um, don't have those options at all. Most restaurants that cook large quantities of food are buying bulk spices, and the quality difference between what's on the shelf at a at a Whole Foods for the for you as a consumer versus what a restaurant has to buy if they're buying a you know one pound bag or a, or a half gallon jar it's night and day. Um, it's almost commoditized, and the quality is so poor. I, half the time, I'll open a jar of something and have to sniff it three or four times to tell them, <laughs> is it cumin or is it coriander? I can't even tell anymore. We were buying bulk spices all the time, fresh from our distribu Indian distributors, mm. and word started spreading, at least around Asheville, that, hey, if you wanted some really fresh garam masala, or if you wanted really high-quality cardamom, just hit up marijuana or even curry leaves. And one day, a restaurant distributor, that's one of the largest distributors in the Carolinas and in Florida, approached us and said, you're starting to get a little bit of a reputation. Um, you know, would you like to collaborate on launching a spice brand for restaurants? Mm -hmm. So that's how we started, Matt. So it was large. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, one more thing that restaurants struggle with is um, most distributors have a one-size-fits-all approach to selling you spices. So sure, you may need a gallon of, let's say, 
paprika. But if you're ordering, let's say, nutmeg, you don't need a gallon of nutmeg. It's going to sit around for five years, and usually it does. And when I go into restaurants and start looking at the shelves, I'm like, I can tell. It's oh, that's dusty. Dusty or yeah. old or yellowed or uh, no longer has essence. So the other thing we offered restaurants was the option of customizing the size and using our knowledge of knowing there's no way somebody's going to use more than a pint of cardamom. But, hey, if we're packaging black peppercorn, let's do that in five-pound bags. So it's quality. Obviously, it's um, background, as in we know where the spices are coming right. from. It's freshness, uh, the turnaround from leaving the fact the farms and the factories of India to the to the um, restaurant shelf is probably the fastest of any spice company that I know. Wow! So, how do you find it? How do you buy it? So we buy. I mean, we work with distributors that we've built relationships with over for the last nine years. Okay. Given that we have a restaurant chain, and given how many spices we use, so we have an Indian distributor that does most of our shopping from India. Then we have a guy in New Jersey that actually does most of our shopping from the rest of the world, and we just we just um, uh, what's make deals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's successful. You've scaled this. It's it's doing well. Well, the part that took off was we built this for restaurants, and then sure enough home use buyers started knocking on our door, right. actually showing up at the factory because they'd read about Spice Wall and they'd come by and say, we're into spices. And we're like, well, unless you want 25 pounds or something, yeah. we're not sure we can help you. So we quickly pivoted to creating a brand for the home chef. And that, Matt, that just went nuts. Love I mean, um, I've cooked from it. I have turmeric still on my hands yeah. from the time I used your turmeric. But I think it's a really uh, great brand, and I, I respect your your business practices. I think it's something that you got to talk about a little bit. And um, I want to talk about speaking of business. You are also in the barbecue game, which is kind of a, a little bit of your sleeper identity. A little bit. I think you don't really advertise it too much, but you're the co-owner of Buxton Hall Barbecue in Asheville. Fucking dope. It's really Thanks. good. Good place, man. <laughs> Love it. We got yeah, Buxton was yeah, we we captured lightning in a bottle there. I mean, that got, you know, Bone App named it one of the ten best new restaurants when it opened, and we um did, didn't open it thinking that at all. I mean, when Elliot Moss, who's the chef there, yeah. approached me with this idea, I could see he was trying to do with Eastern Carolina barbecue what I was trying to do with Indian street food. Yeah. Same idea. And this was even cooler because this is, hey, acclaimed fine dining chef goes back yeah. to his roots and wants to make barbecue the way he grew up eating it. I just knew that the idea was brilliant. And the only reason I got involved was because there was such a similarity in his story and my story and the way we were approaching what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was one of those just one in a million chance encounters that led to this restaurant and then when it blew up both of us were as shocked as it's a huge place and it's always packed are you opening any more of those guys it's a huge place and it's always packed so it's kind of hard to imagine doing anything else right now never say never but it's kind of hard to imagine doing more than one is Elliot still naming all the pigs he brings in like every every single pig every day is named I mean the pigs come from a (laughs) farm run by an 80 year old gentleman and his wife 30 (laughs) minutes outside of town they've been pasture raising their hogs for decades and and the least we could do is to acknowledge let's name the pig and, and it takes it out of the world of it being a commodity yeah, and, and brings it into the world of like, this was a live breathing animal yeah. that, that is, that's now providing food. So it's on like a beat up clipboard that's in the, near the kitchen. What are some of the names that have been? Uh... Oh my God. Like when, when, you know, David Bowie passed away, it was Piggy Stardust, you know, I mean, it's just silly <laughs> stuff out there, no, you know, funny. when, you know, uh, 
there's been Skywalker pigs, there's been Jedi pigs, there's been every cultural pop reference you can imagine. We probably had a pig named after it. But often we'll name a pig uh, in honor of somebody. And Elliot, for a long time, would keep the tag on which oh, the yeah. pig's name would be written. And, and he'd give them out every now and then to a customer um, if there was a special connection going oh, on cool. between It's a great Carolina-style barbecue in Asheville. Buxton Thanks, Hall, man. shouts. Okay, so we're in New York. Yeah. You're here in town for some events. Okay, how's the Indian food in New York? Oh, um, long pause. Okay, so no, 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 we're no, no, getting no. Hang into on. it. No, 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 no. Um, well, okay, this trip, I think I have four reservations to eat at Indian restaurants. Awesome. Because I'm so excited to see the sort of shift that's happened in the last four to five years. Um, really my has. previous experiences in New York, and remember, I'm speaking purely on a personal level. This is not meant, you know, meant to convey everybody else's experience. That's the hedge. But, okay. Yeah, right. my hedge was I'd come here, I'd go to Jackson uh, Heights, 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 yeah, Heights sure. yeah, you know, to all the Indian places, and again, it was fun, it was immersive, and it was perfectly okay. You could tell that people were filling a need. Nobody out there was losing their mind over, you know, really caring for the ingredients and the quality and technique and refinement and, and flavor. They were just doing the best they could. But now we've seen a wave of Indian restaurants in the city where, you know, chefs are really giving it their all. They're really caring about what they're doing. They're caring about the atmosphere, the ambience, the story they're telling. And I think that's incredibly exciting. Um, it's still a little um, genre specific, I would say. And I'm hoping that that continues to expand, that mm -hmm. other Indian cuisines that are probably still stuck in the sort of more um, ethnic parts of town mm -hmm. start coming to the forefront. So where are your four reservations and where, so where are you excited to We're going to uh, Floyd's Place uh, Bread Bar. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd been to Pawala, and I'm kind of excited to go back and try the, the new iteration. We're going to Adda, which uh, you know recently was on the short, long list for best new restaurant, which is yeah. really cool. Uh, Rahi, its sister restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, Gupshap. Mm -hmm. Are we going to try that one too? Uh, I think there's one more, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. That's a good itinerary. Yeah, it's a good itinerary. But it's really sense. cool. I agree. It's it's really has shifted, and Floyd Cordo's is like definitely like been leading the way in New York. But there's plenty of young, talented chefs opening yeah. here. Oh yeah, I mean that we could continue name dropping. There's there's no, a lot of great. different restaurants. Yeah, I love cool. it. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast um, if you could write a cookbook um, with with. But no budgets, restraints, or any any kind of time constraints. What would that cookbook be? Damn. I mean, I could write a cookbook on what I don't want the cookbook to be. <laughs> it's part of the game, true. But like, let's. What's the dream cookbook? Well, I you mean, you probably have one in you. It would be sort of Indian street food, but not in this sort of precious, cute. Like, oh, we're going to the streets of India. It's more telling the story of how Indian street food is truly the most Indian thing. Uh, the most Indian cuisine in India. It, it's it doesn't just tell the story of a genre of food. It tells the story of how an entire civilization, civilization, culture, um, and so many diverse and disparate communities, religious communities, uh, socioeconomic communities, all come together over one democratic thing, and that's street food. So it would be on street food. I really look forward to reading that. Thank you, Matt. Marilyn and Ronnie, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Always a pleasure. Here's Anna with Donald Moore from the Cheesecake Factory. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Donald. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. 
My first question I need to know: Did you invent the cheeseburger spring rolls? The the story about the cheeseburger spring rolls. I was actually in Austin, Texas, and was walking. We were opening a one a Grand Lux Cafe, which is one of another restaurant that we own. And I was walking through this mall, and it was like really cool, sort of hip outdoor mall. And I went into this quick place to get some noodles, and they had these wontons with ground beef and the spicy sauce. And I was like, well, that'd be really neat to sort of take that idea and create a cheeseburger spring roll. And we did it, and we were sort of not excited about it at first because we were like, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of something that everybody could have. But then we really got into it. And went through like 15 versions to get the ground beef seared right, to get sort of this all-American um, like cheeseburger flavor inside a spring roll wrapper. And we tried like seven different wrappers too, so they weren't greasy, the texture was right. Wow. But basically we were trying to get like the flavor of an In-N-Out burger inside yeah. a wrapper. Um, and we got pretty close and they're really, really popular. They're really good. I mean, I was kind of surprised because it almost doesn't sound like a concept that should work, but you bite in, it's crunchy on the outside, and then it really tastes like a cheeseburger on the inside. It's like that melty kind of like American cheese really savory beef flavor. Yeah, I find them pretty nostalgic like from my childhood of eating cheeseburgers, but they um they there's a way to sort of cook the beef cuz we we patty all of our beef every day in our restaurants multiple times very gently so it doesn't get tough mm -hmm. and um uh, and the way we sear the meat so that it has sort of the right crumbly texture like a burger would. Um and there's a lot of little tricks that we do to sort of accomplish that. Wow, in and out inspiration. I love that. You mentioned in a Facebook video that you seek some inspiration. You're you're from LA, you live in LA, that you get some inspiration from the taco trucks on Abbott Kinney in LA. How how often do you find yourself eating tacos and how does that inspiration kind of happen? Well, I would eat tacos every day, all day, if I could. They're one of my favorite <laughs> things. Uh, but we, you know, we sort of find ideas everywhere. Um, our founder, David Overton, created the company in 1978 with to really showcase his mom's cheesecakes. And that's where the first restaurant started in Beverly Hills. And from day one, he always said, there's nothing that America wants that can't go on our menu. And we have a pretty big canvas to be able to work on with, you know, over 200 menu items, almost 250 menu items. So we look everywhere, whether it's, you know, I was in two restaurants this week in New York that were amazing. One being Frenchette that had a really awesome chicken and a killer souffle omelet to, um, you know, to a taco truck on Abbott Kinney and the parking lot of the brig um, that has a great short rib, great kimchi, and a great togarashi ole. We're sort of looking everywhere, not just for concepts, but also for sort of inspiration on ingredients, different techniques, like making a short rib Korean taco. You really have to sear the meat, but get the meat sort of chewy, but not too tough. Um, there are ideas sort of everywhere, and we're firm believers that you can find inspiration everywhere. Do you find yourself traveling a lot internationally also as research? We do. Um, we have restaurants all over the world, um, some in Mexico, Latin America, and in the Middle East, and as well as China. So anytime we travel, we're um, working hard to open our restaurants and make sure they're perfect and the guest experience is perfect. But we're also eating in all those places to sort of find ideas. 
and even when I go on vacations uh, with my family. In, in domestically, too, when we visit our own restaurants or open new restaurants, we'll go, whether it's Chattanooga or New York City, we'll try to eat in the best places and see what's really hot and what people are gravitating towards. So we're sort of always uh, eating out multiple times a night uh, when we're on the road. Were there any menu items that were on that original 1978 menu that still are on the menu today or have tastes just totally changed in those 40 years? They have. I think there's similarities in the cooking styles, but most of the original items are gone. Most recently, we just took off the factory burger, which was one of the original items, and we'll still make it for our longtime guests that have been dining in those restaurants for 35 to 40 years. And that was one of the last food items. And there's a couple of cheesecakes from day one, like the original cheesecake, uh, how the company started, and the fresh strawberry, which I think will always be in the sort of fabric of what we do. Have people's opinions about cheesecake changed in the last 40 years? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, people are a little more health conscious maybe than they were in the 70s. But do people think differently about cheesecakes? I think the answer to that is we're not seeing that. Um, There's no question that what you read is people, uh, and myself personally too, want more wellness and want to eat good. And what you put into your body is what you get out of your body. But there's no question that we're still indulgent. And even the cheesecakes are rich and decadent. But so many people share them. They take them home. They eat them throughout the week. Um, So we have not seen a decline in cheesecake sales at all. Good. That's Uh, what I like to hear. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned the burger because I was also going to ask, when you do take a menu item off the menu, do you get a lot of feedback? Do you get like angry emails, Facebook comments kind of demanding the the old standbys? Uh, what's more violent and aggressive than that? I mean, yes, <laughs> we we first of all, we personally fall in love with the items, including the founder, myself, uh, our corporate chef and our team. When we create these items, we really did it for a reason and a lot of effort and blood, sweat and tears went into those items. But when we take items off, um, they, the guests really go crazy. And I, and still to this day, I go see some of our longtime guests and they're, why is this item that on? The restaurant won't make it for me anymore. Um, people do go on Facebook. There's lots of sort of areas where people vent about, uh, their items coming off. Our, our founders sort of funny responses. You should have bought it more. Uh, it's, it would still be on the menu, but we're really, really particular about, uh, making sure the stuff on our menu sells so we can keep it fresh for the guests and uh, and it's easier for the restaurants to operate as well. Too. Do you remember off the top of your head any of those menu items that people have gotten really furious about? For sure. There's a there's one called the Navajo, which is like this fry bread mm. um, with chicken and this really spicy mayonnaise that, uh, that everybody goes crazy for. There was a California brie melt, which was like brie and avocado. Um, there was this chicken salt and boca. I can keep going. The chicken salt and boca <laughs> because we change our menu twice a year um, and we've been doing that for 40 years. And we often add 10 or 12 things and then take 10 or 12 things off every six months. So we're sort of always disappointing uh, someone. But um, but we have we hopefully we really think through making sure there's like those categories that people want, whether it's Mexican or Asian. Um, we think to make sure we're covered there. So there's always something they can sort of gravitate towards. A lot of the menu items uh, have sort of like regional American flavors, California-inspired, Southwest-inspired. How do you keep all of this food consistent no matter what Cheesecake Factory in the country someone is dining at? So I think that the number one way we're able to remain consistent is we have excellent people working in our restaurants. And that's at every level from the dishwashers 
critically important to our business, the line cooks, the servers, the bartenders, the bakers, and our general managers and executive kitchen managers and the management teams. We have very long-tenured staff members. We have a very rich culture. We're in Fortune's Top 100 companies to work for. Uh, for a few years now, I think we were number 25 this year and, and only one restaurant company on the list. So the tenure of our general managers and executive kitchen managers is, is the average is over 10 years. We were at a restaurant this morning in New Jersey where I was going down the line and that restaurant's been there for 17 years and a salté pasta cook, a salad cook, a broiler cook, 17 years, 17 years, 16 years, 15 years. So we're able to sort of deal with the complexity and um, and all of the challenges to operate in a restaurant because we're so well-tenured and we have great people. And we're very, very focused um, on training. We probably invest more on training than, um, than most restaurant companies, and that's very critical to the success of our business and being differentiated. Where are the cheesecakes themselves actually made? The cheesecakes are made in two bakeries um, in two different parts of the country. How many would you say are made every day? Do you have any idea? I think most of them are made every day because we sell so many cheesecakes. Do you have any idea like how many cheesecakes are made per day though? I could probably that'd be guessing, but it's <laughs> it's you know, it's in the tens of thousands and we're selling so many cheesecakes and uh and these facilities are these bakeries are just amazing. Um there's so so much artisanship and craftsmanship that goes into hand cutting <laughs> candy bars putting nuts on the outside of the cakes, doing the little dollops by hand um, that you wouldn't expect at that volume. Yeah. I want to talk about some of your most famous fans. There's a strong connection between the NBA and the Cheesecake Factory. Drake famously loves the Cheesecake Factory. Who else? What's bigger than Drake? Um, there are a lot. There's a, there was a great article about uh, the NBA, play, NBA players from a few years ago called First We Feast, from First We Feast. And it talked about all the reasons why they love the Cheesecake Factory, whether it was our whole wheat baguette or brown bread, which everybody sort of goes crazy for, um, the cheesecakes, taking their mother there, the fact that they felt like they were eating in a five-star restaurant at three-star pricing. A lot of the NBA players like the big round tables so they can spread out and and uh, and have a better conversation. Um, and they all have their sort of favorite items. But I think that, you know, for a lot of athletes, uh, they travel and they're in new cities all the time and they want something that they know, uh, can trust, and, and we've been very good to them and they've been very good to us and we appreciate it. I ate at a Cheesecake Factory earlier this week and I noticed that a lot of the menu items are named after people like Linda's Apple Pie Cheesecake, Craig's Crazy Carrot Cake. Who are the people who all these menu items are named after? Sure. So Linda, was a, she's our vice president of guest experience today. She's been with the company well over 30 years, and she's an amazing woman uh, who's had an unbelievable impact on our business and hospitality in our restaurants. She started in the bakery with, with our founder's mother, and uh, so she has a cake named after her. There's a, there's a, um, a Sheila salad. That's our founder's wives. So Aww. it's very important people uh, that have had a big impact on really David's life or our company's business sort of have something named after them. That's great. The Cheesecake Factory is pretty famous for having one of the largest menus. Um, how do you keep track of it all? Do you know the menu inside and out? Like, how would you do on a quiz of menu items? Do you think? Um, I think I, you know, I, I think I would do pretty well. Like, we're I've been with the company for seventeen years, mm -hmm. um, and it's our business, and we should know it. So I think. 
Uh, we are very serious about having what we call depth of knowledge of the product. And we're constantly revisiting it through sort of strategic ways to uh, keep your knowledge at a high level, whether it's training, recertifications. Um, but we uh, and our founder said this sort of since day one, since I joined the company, that the cash registers in the restaurants and we are not a, a company that's sort of like a top heavy corporate office where we want to spend time in our restaurants with our guests, with our staff, learning about the challenges, the opportunities, what we can do to improve the experience, um, which keeps all of us fresh. And we do the same thing at every level to make sure um, that the training's there. And we have a lot of great technology in our company, too, um, whether it's the way we train our staff through iPads, interactive uh, videos and technology. It's, it's something that's really important to us because the knowledge is key sort of at that complexity. Well, Donald, thank you so much for joining us on the Taste Podcast. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for the time. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.